Thank you, Brother David. It's a privilege for me to be here in Points Pass. I've been here before on a couple of occasions, and uh, it's good to be back with you this morning. Can I ask you to turn with me, please, in your Bibles to the book of First Peter, First Peter and chapter 1. As David says, we have been friends for a long time, and it's uh, been very good this week to uh, renew fellowship with David and Hazel and to experience their hospitality. 1 Peter chapter 1, and we're reading from verse number 13. One Peter 1, reading from verse 13. Wherefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and hope to the end for the grace that is to be brought unto you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, not fashioning yourselves according to the former lusts and your ignorance, but as he which hath called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation. Because it's written, be ye holy, for I am holy. And if ye call on the Father, who without respect of persons judgeth according to every man's work, pass the time of your sojourning here in fear. For as much as ye know that ye were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold from your vain conversation, received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb, without blemish and without spot, who verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you, who by him do believe in God, that raised him up from the dead, and gave him glory, that your faith and hope might be in God. Ending there, we know that the Lord will certainly add the blessing to the reading of his inspired and inerrant word. Shall we pray? Father in heaven, we thank you for uh, this day and this opportunity and this gathering. And pray, gracious God, that you would speak through your word. Pray that the preacher might be hid behind the cross and that all the glory would go to the Lord Jesus Christ. Give us open minds, receptive hearts, and dear Lord, above all, submissive wills, in Jesus' name. Amen. There's a worldly proverb that's becoming ever more popular today. It's the hope that kills you. I don't think Peter would have agreed with that. For according to him, it's the hope that inspires us to live. The word wherefore in verse 13 of chapter 1 links the previous section of this letter with the present section that we read a moment or two ago in verses 13 through 21. And under the great theme of the believer's salvation, Peter had previously exhorted his readers to live in hope. Now he urges them to live in in holiness. He told them previously to live in hope. Now he urges them to live in holiness because of the hope. Because of the hope that they had. Because of all that was theirs in Christ. They should now live in holiness. These two concepts go together. 1 John verse 3. Uh, 1 John 3 and verse 3 indicates, and every man that hath this hope in him purifieth himself even as he is pure. 
Interestingly, Peter used the indicative mood in chapter 1, verses 1 through 12. But now, until almost the end of this letter, he uses the imperative mood. In all, there are no less than 35 imperatives in these or in this letter. What the apostle is saying, in effect, is this that now you have this wonderful new life in Christ, you need to live it. You need to show it. And the first thing that we must seek to do is to live in holiness. God demands of us that we live holy lives. Now the root of the word translated holy here actually is different. That's what it means, different. Christians are not and shouldn't ever seek to be odd. Though if you speak to some pastors, they might give you a different take on that. But actually, we are different. We have a different perspective. We live by different principles. Our practices are different. We are motivated by different passions. And above all, we are headed for a different destination. The world thinks that we are strange. Peter says in uh, chapter 4 and verse 4 of this same letter, wherein they think it's strange that ye run not with them to the same access of riot, speaking evil of you. In other words, because we don't do the same things as those uh, who are men and women of the world, uh, they think it strange. Uh, They think we are somehow weird. Well, we're not weird, but we are different. I think you would agree with me that it's becoming increasingly difficult to live a holy lifestyle, to maintain a holy walk in a polluted world. Peter knew that this was so in his generation. He knew that his readers were facing these same problems. So he gave them three incentives for holy living. And the same three incentives apply to us. He called on them to consider the calling of God in verse 13, the character of God in verses 14 through 17, and the cross of Christ in verses 18 through 21. Let's notice first the calling of God. Chapter 1 and verse 13. Wherefore, gird up the loins of your mind, Be sober and hope to the end for the grace that is to be brought unto you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Friends, our calling as believers is to the salvation that will be fully revealed at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And in light of our calling as believers, the Apostle Peter here exhorts us to gird up the loins of our minds and be sober and hope to the end. I want you to notice for a moment that term, gird up, gird up. It brings into focus the dress style of the ancient Near East, when long flowing garments were the fashion. Now these garments, of course, would get in the way of work, and so people would gather them up into their belt so that they'd be unhindered. With this concept in mind, the exhortation here is for believers to have a disciplined mind. It's uh, 
telling us that we need to pull together our thoughts in particular. In the context, Peter is urging believers to focus their thoughts on one thing. What is it he's urging believers to focus their thoughts on? It's this, the return of Christ, the end of their salvation. When we have our minds fixed on Christ and on his return, then worldly things cannot impede us. You see, outlook determines outcome. Some people tell us today that we shouldn't uh, consider uh, too deeply the things that pertain to the end, that eschatology is not something that we really should go into, that things like the book of Revelation and other prophetic passages in Scripture, uh, well, yes, you can read them, but uh, don't put too much store in them. Don't go into them too deeply. What nonsense. The more we know about what's uh, in our future, the better we'll be able to live in the present. The Wright brothers invented the concept of flight. But their dad was venomously opposed to the idea, believing it actually to be lunacy. On one occasion it was noted that he uh, went to visit a a minister friend of his. And when they began to talk uh, about this subject, he got up in a rage and stormed out of the house. Both the Wright brothers and their dad lived under the same sky, but they had different perspectives. The best example of this in Scripture would be Abraham and Lot. Abraham was looking for a city whose builder and maker was God. So he had little interest in the world's property. And of course, we know what happened. God blessed him for it. Lot, on the other hand, uh, looked on the well-watered plains of Sodom and he ended up living in that wicked city. And we know what happened. It became a curse to him. If you're living for this world, quite frankly, you're living for the wrong world. Furthermore, believers should have sober minds, meaning minds that are calm and untroubled. As believers, we have a steadfast hope, a hope that will be realized when Christ returns. And that hope should enable us to remain calm, uh, not to panic uh, when we see that all around us the world is falling apart. Have you noticed these days copious numbers of people who are becoming increasingly concerned, increasingly concerned about the world in which they live? If it's not uh, so-called global warming, uh, then it's the war in the Ukraine or something else. It's always something that gets them going, uh, that agitates them, that uh, keeps them in in a state of, of concern and anxiety. Believers shouldn't be like that. Because we know that all things are under his control. Our hope in Christ's return is sure. And all that's happening is happening in fulfillment of God's purpose to establish the kingdom of his dear son here on earth. He knows what uh, the future holds. Uh, He has planned the future for us. And all things are working according to his purpose. Therefore, we should fix our minds on that great event. And be calm. Doing so will enable us to live 
a life of holiness. A life that's different from the life that the worldlings living all around. We see it in t-shirts and on cups today, don't we? The logo, keep calm and carry on. I believe Peter would be quite content with that sentiment. Keep calm and carry on. Why? Because we have a hope. A hope that is both sure and steadfast. That brings us then secondly to the character of God in verses 14 through 17. As obedient children, not fashioning yourselves according to the former lusts in your ignorance. But as he which hath called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation. Because it is, as it is written, be ye holy, for I am holy. And if ye call on the Father, who without respect of persons judgeth according to every man's work, pass the time of your sojourning here in fear. As children, we inherit the nature of our parents. I feel very sorry for my two boys having their mother's nature. But it's true, as children, uh, we, we do inherit the nature of our parents. It follows, therefore, as God's children, we should manifest the traits of our Heavenly Father. We've been made, all of us, partakers of uh, the divine nature as Christians. As the Apostle points out in his second epistle, therefore we ought to reveal something of that nature by a godly lifestyle. You've seen it many times, I'm sure. You meet someone coming along the street. They've just had a new baby and the little child is in the carriage and we look into the carriage. Oh, he's got his, his mother's eyes. Oh, she's got uh, her, her father's smile. We look like our parents, but we also behave like our parents. And therefore, as God's children, we should look like and behave like our Father. The holy character of God demands two responses from us. A new conversation, verses 14 to 16. So obedient children, not fashioning yourselves according to the former lust in your ignorance, but as he which hath called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation. Because it is written, be ye holy, for I am holy. Because God is holy, we who are his children should be holy. Now what does it mean to be holy? Well, holiness means separate and pure. God is separate from sinners. That is, he is distinct from sinners. He's different to sinners. And of course, God is pure. That is, he's morally perfect. And as such, as his children, we must surely strive to be like him. Therefore, Peter exhorts us to be obedient. Be obedient. Before our conversion, we were disobedient. When in time past, you walked according to the course of this world. According to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience, among whom also we all had our conversation in time past, in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others, writes the Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 2. But since we trusted Christ, our lives are to be marked, not by disobedience any longer, but by obedience. But God be thanked. 
that ye were the servants of sin, but ye have obeyed from the heart and from the doctrine uh, and that form of doctrine which was delivered you. And by this we know, as John tells us, that we are the children of God. When we love God and keep his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. There is, of course, a negative and a positive to this. Negatively, it means not fashioning ourselves according to the former lusts in our ignorance. The lusts that Peter is speaking of here, uh, lusts that once characterized us in our former lifestyles, included sinful desires, evil thoughts, uncontrolled appetites. The sort of thing uh, that Peter highlights in chapter 2 of this letter, verses 3 and 4. For the time past of our life may suffice us to have wrought the will of the Gentiles. In other words, in the past we, we lived according to how the Gentiles in, in those days lived. When we walked in lasciviousness, lusts, access of wine, revelings, banquetings and abominable idolatries, wherein they think it is strange that you run not with them to the same access of riot. Note Peter's language here. He says, not fashioning yourselves. Meaning, don't let these things continue to shape your lives. Why? For they will destroy us. They will destroy us. For if they do continue to shape our lives, we'll find it ever more difficult to break free from them. Formerly, In our sin, we were in bondage to our old appetites. But since we have been saved, we have become free and able to reject them. Positively, the apostle exhorts, But as he which hath called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation. Their conversation or their lifestyle uh, had to reflect the moral purity of God, their father. Now, this was not something new to them, as Peter points out in verse 16. For it was written in the law. He quotes Leviticus eleven forty-four. It was written there that God's children were to be holy. Why? Because he was holy. Now, if we're to be holy in all manner of conversation, that means that we're to be holy in absolutely everything that we do. All that we do should reflect God's holy character. It's not a question of being holy on Sunday and living the way we please every other day of the week. We've got to constantly be holy. We've got to be showing the world that we're different. We've got to project an image And that image that we've got to project is that we belong to the Lord, that we're his children, that we're his people. And therefore we act accordingly. The fact that Peter quotes the Old Testament scripture here serves to reinforce his point and indicate how important he felt this issue was. Then in verse 17, of course, there's a new concern. Not only a new conversation, but a new concern. Formerly, as unbelievers, we feared men. And, of course, we feared death. Proverbs says, the fear of man 
bringeth a snare. And Hebrews tells us that they were, through fear of death, all their lifetime subject to bondage. But we, we have been set free, set free from these fears. And we become subject to another fear, a very different fear. Not a negative fear, but a positive fear, the fear of the Lord. And scripture tells us that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. This fear that we now have of God teaches us to conduct ourselves properly with one eye on the judgment. But what judgment? What judgment? The Bible sometimes speaks generally of the subject of judgment, but it never ever speaks of a general judgment. The Bible tells us that there are a series of judgments. For example, there's the uh, judgment of the living nations that will take place at the end of the tribulation. And then there's the great white throne of judgment that will take place uh, after the millennium. But the judgment uh, that Peter and other apostles point us to are none of these judgments. Rather, it's the judgment seat of Christ. Judgment that the apostle here is pointing to must be the judgment seat of Christ. It's the only future judgment that the believer will face. It's not a judgment regarding sin. It's a judgment regarding service. Every man's works will be judged. We'll be judged according to our works. The Apostle Paul speaks of it in two places. Well, actually in three places, but... In two places in the Corinthian letters. If you turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 5 for a moment please. And verse 9. 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 9. Wherefore we labor that whether present or absent we may be accepted of him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. That everyone may receive the things done in his body according to that he hath done, whether it be good or bad. And then if you would kindly turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 3, just a little further on from where uh, Pastor Moore read this morning at the beginning of the service. 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 12. Now if any man build Upon this foundation, gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, stubble. Every man's work shall be made manifest, for the day shall declare it. Because it shall be revealed by fire, and the fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is. If any man's work abide, which he hath built thereon, he shall receive a reward. If any man's work shall be burned, he shall suffer loss, but he himself shall be saved, yet so as by fire. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. If we only but realized that actually one day we shall stand before the judgment seat of Christ to give an account, we might perhaps be more diligent in our service, more serious about our separation, and more conscious of our treatment of others. It's not a judgment of sin, it's a judgment of service. Our sins have already been judged at the cross, but our service will be examined. Our lives will be scrutinized. And whether or not we receive a reward will be 
determined by how we have lived and behaved. That brings us to our third point this morning, verses 18 to 21, the cross of Christ, the cross of Christ. For as much as ye know that ye were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold uh, from your vain conversation, received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot, who verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you, who by him do believe in God that raised him up from the dead and gave him glory that your faith and hope might be in God. Surely the greatest incentive of all for holy living is the cross. Peter concludes this section of his letter here by telling us two things about the redemption that was wrought for us on the cross. He brings before us the price of it and he explains to us the plan of it. First of all, in verses 18 and 19, the price of it. You know, we were once held in bondage as slaves by sin. Our conversation or our lifestyle was vanity, meaning futile. Consider here to whom Peter is writing for a moment. It's Jewish believers of the diaspora. So the lifestyle handed down, down to them was messianic, messianic Judaism. Oral legends handed down from the rabbis. These traditions uh, hold sway over the Jewish community, even to this day. Many still follow them. Reminds us of the reality that false religion can enslave us just as much as any sinful habit can. And the futility of their false religious practices uh, was the powerlessness of this tradition to in any way affect their situation, whether in the present or in the future. They could practice the religion till they were blue in the face, but because it was not handed down from above, but developed from the understanding of men, it became vain tradition and it enslaved them. Oh, how false religion can enslave people today. But they were not bought out of this slavery by corruptible things such as silver or gold. The slave in the slave market could be bought with a piece of gold or a bag of silver. But this was not the case as far as you and I are concerned, as far as Peter's Peter's readers were concerned. It is, of course, the mark of false religion of any kind that salvation is earned or bought. Peter here, however, makes it clear that these believers were not redeemed from a futile life by these things, but by the precious blood of Christ. You know, the blood of Jesus Christ is precious. It's precious because of its high value. Peter mentions a number of other precious things uh, in this epistle. In one uh, verses. Uh, 19, there's precious problems. Uh, in, in 1 Peter 2, 4, uh, 6 and 7, uh, there's precious person. 
in 2 Peter 1 verse 1, it's precious principles. And in 2 Peter 1 4, there are precious promises. But here, it's the precious blood. Notice the reference to Christ as a lamb without blemish and without spot. It relates, doesn't it, to the picture of the Passover where sacrificial lambs uh, that were offered had to be unblemished. The Passover lamb was unblemished physically, but Christ, our Passover lamb, is unblemished morally. No sin could be laid to his charge. Even his enemies had to admit that he was innocent, the innocent victim. Practical import of all this is that it's a great incentive to holy living. If Jesus Christ gave his life for us to rescue us from bondage and damnation, then surely it's not too much to ask that we obey his command to be holy. We'll want to do it. We'll desire to do it because we'll want to please him. We'll want to show him that we love him. Therefore, holy living isn't something that should be held up as some kind of standard uh, that we're, we're beaten along to, to receive and, and to get and again. No, quite the opposite. It's something that we should desire today. And of course, there's the plan of it. Verses 20 to 21. The plan of our redemption was made in eternity past and manifest in time. It was made in eternity. Look at verse 20, please. Who verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world. You know, even before there was a problem, there was a plan. When the triune God decided to create, it was obvious that he would have to redeem. The fall was anticipated even before creation. And it was then that the plan of man's redemption was made. Now, God wasn't the author of the fall, but he foresaw the fall. And therefore, he hatched a plan. It's a little bit like the book of Esther. There was a rescue plan before ever there was a problem. The plan was in making right up through the chapters of Esther and manifest when we come to the the last few chapters of that book. Even before there was a problem, there was a plan. But it was manifest in time. Look at verse 20 again, and the latter part, but was manifest in these last times for you, who by him do believe in God, that raised him up from the dead, and gave him glory, that your faith and hope might be in God. That plan came to fruition with the incarnation. It was manifest in these last times. Cross, however was not the end. The plan also involved the resurrection and ascension. Raised him up from the dead and gave him glory. All of which gives to us that precious hope. The hope that we have in Christ. And our hope is not a a vague hope. So it's not the, the hope of the world. It's not that uh, hope so, think so, maybe so salvation. As the song says, the kind that leaves you here with no consolation. No, 
It's a sure and steadfast hope as an anchor of the soul. And because we have this hope, then we should live in holiness. When the young Francis Ridley Habergale saw a picture of the crucified Christ and read the caption underneath, I did this for thee, what hast thou done for me? She wrote a poem that she later published and it became the basis for a hymn. I gave my life for thee, my precious blood I shed, that I might ransomed be and quickened from the dead. I gave, I gave my life for thee. What hast thou given for me? He's given us hope. Is it too much therefore to expect that we be holy? May God help us so to be.